landings and practice force landings. And if I had one final lesson to teach, what would it be? All that and more coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everybody and welcome to episode 59 of the Flight Training Australia podcast, the podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I am your host Trent Robinson, thank you for joining me. Sorry for being a day late, been a little bit busy this week uh, and every other week, but yeah, crazy weekend, a couple of Christmas parties with uh, the Darwin flight training team and uh, drifting, which my uh, son's involved with, Top End Drift Association, g'day everyone there at Teeter. And, uh, yeah, just flying the pants off aeroplanes and uh, just so much going on. Industry is booming at the moment, especially up here in the Territory anyway. I hope it is the same everywhere else. Uh, Shout out to Stu the Farmer. He uh, posted a story I shared the other day. Uh, He was out there driving his tractor after some recent rains and listening to the podcast. It was really cool, made my day. So, mate, thank you for posting that and tagging me. Very, very cool indeed. And, uh, yeah, look, it gave me a bit of an idea. If any of you want to share yourself listening to the podcast, wherever that is, post it online and tag me in it. And if you have any questions or you want to just help me settle an argument amongst your colleagues or fellow students, send it in. And between all that, I will select someone each month and send you a exclusive Flight Training Australia cap as seen on social media on my head. All right, so send those through. And we have a bunch more questions, as promised from last week, and a few more that have trickled in. I've got a few more to go, and uh, let's get into some of those right now. So the first one's from Eugenio, and he says, Hey, Trent, is there a preference from employers to what type of experience you have? For example, a couple of thousand hours as an instructor versus a couple of thousand hours as a... uh, non-scheduled air transport pilot or charter pilot in the old terms when applying for an airline? Thank you. All right, mate. Look, great question. And there's a couple of different approaches, I guess, as to the solution to this one. The thing we've got to remember is there's different levels of instructor. And what I mean by that is more the style of instruction and the environment that they're doing it in. I know, um, as I've mentioned many times now, I've had a really good sort of instructional and hands-on charter uh, exposure. So that was great. Though I've had a lot of instructors come to me for further training and have really had their skills perish because they barely get any hands-on experience. They know their rules, they know the regulations, they know training protocols, and all that is usually top-notch and no problem but their hands-on skills tend to diminish. They tend to fly in very controlled environments, as I mentioned um, not long ago. If the weather's not that great and the training objectives can't be met, they tend not to go. So they tend to be reasonably fair-weathered pilots. Uh, Again, this isn't an accusation or anything. That's just fact. So... If you're then going to go into an airline environment where it can be 
game on with weather and decision-making and all these sort of things, it can be challenging through the lack of opportunity to do that, the type of experience that they have, and also the hands-on or lack of hands-on exposure that they've got. My recommendation is always to not get too comfortable in one place for too long and try and get as much exposure as you can. There is no doubt with Part 119 coming into play uh, that having instructional qualifications are going to be beneficial, primarily the design feature and single-engine class or multi-engine class rating training endorsements to be able to do flight reviews within a 135 operation or 121, etc. Um, so that is definitely going to help you out. And if you can manage that within the same organisation, fantastic. If you've got to stray out a little bit to find that mix, then I strongly encourage you to do that. And use the opportunity to get out, uh, do some charter work, see the countryside, go somewhere different for a little while. It's not forever and just go and have a blast, and you, you will be all the better for it. I can tell you that right now. All right, mate, hope that answers your question. Thank you much for sending it in. Thank you so much. Uh, what do we got here? All right, Alistair, um, following on to that kind of topic, he uh, says, Go, Trent, hope you're well. I've been a listener to your podcast for a while now and had a question about the privileges of a grade three instructor with regard to completing flight reviews. I'm getting ready for my grade three initial flight test. Uh, in episode 10 and 12, you mentioned a grade three can conduct flight reviews on a single engine, provided they had single engine class rating training endorsement. I spoke to a few instructors from my school about this, but they couldn't really shed much light. They seemed to think that because a grade three had to act under supervision from a grade one, they couldn't conduct flight reviews. I was just basically wondering where it says in the regs that a grade three can complete the flight reviews. Okay. Really great question, Alistair. And again, I'm answering this one quite often at the moment because of the Part 119 changes. So if you listen carefully to what I said, um, I didn't say a Grade 3 can conduct the flight review. I said the Grade 3 will have a single engine class rating, as you've mentioned, and it's not the Grade 3 that you're doing the flight review under. It's the single engine class rating qualification. So that is what is allowing you to do the flight review. So to do a flight review, you need to either hold a single engine or a multi-engine training endorsement. It doesn't matter what else you hold. If you happen to hold a grade three, that's fantastic. That allows you to teach ab initio and uh, PPL, CPL, but that's got nothing to do with flight reviews. And that's what, makes some people get a little bit confused because they go, well, how can you do a 30 plus hour instructor rating course and not be able to do flight reviews, but go do five, 10 hours or whatever you'd end up doing in a single engine class rating and then be able to do them. Well, again, remember the single engine class rating is targeting how to fly a single engine aircraft or a multi-engine aircraft, if you've got that one, and how to conduct the flight review. That's what should be covered because that's going to be the privileges of that training endorsement. Alrighty, so hopefully that now clears that one up. If that's what you're doing, if you're looking at a, uh, a working in a 135 operation and you're looking at the Part 119 uh, process that's coming up and you want to be able to do check and training within your organization, then that's what you should be looking at. 
design feature and single engine or multi-engine class rating. Remember, multi-engine covers single, uh, assuming you then deal with your competencies and proficiencies in other ways. All right, Alistair, thank you so much for the question, mate. And uh, yes, I am staying safe in the wet season. We're on a two-week break at the moment, but it is looking getting a bit monsoonal, hopefully in another week or so, because it's getting bloody hot. <laughs> All right, on to Glenn. And Glenn sends an email. Uh, G'day, Trent. Uh, question uh, for your podcast. What are the biggest errors you tend to see in flight tests, either specifically or in each test, RPL through the instrument rating? All right, Glenn, yeah, look, great question. And funnily enough, uh, I've just finished, well, not finished, but I started mentoring um, another new examiner today, uh, actually the owner of Darwin Flight Training, and he's up from Adelaide at the moment, and we did an RPL flight test today. And we were just talking about the common problems or fail reasons uh, in, in flight tests. And CASA tend to cover this. Um, when we do a proficiency program, I haven't done one of those courses for a while. A lot of it's online now. But in the beginning, they collated a lot of the data for the flight test notification system or the FTNS, which is what we uh, examiners go into to get your flight test numbers and obviously record passes and fails and then what elements um, are showing up as regular fails. And I've sort of touched on this before. Some of the main ones are straight and level maintaining altitude it's something that plagues pilots right the way through and i link it right back to primacy being the first time you've been taught something and that's straight and level and this one's really on the instructors to fix because as a straight and level student you just don't know any better you, you don't know anything about flying. You're really relying on your instructor at that point in your career, um, especially to teach you properly from the beginning. So whatever uh, mnemonic or um, pract- uh, workflow that you use to fly straight level, you would do something like uh, power attitude speed trim or attitude uh, speed power trim, depending on if you're coming from a climb or descent. And then your work cycle, attitude lookout, attitude performance, or lookout attitude performance, whichever one you're using. Now, remember, if you're leveling off from a climb, for example, which is typically what you're going to do, you're going to depart an aerodrome, level off, and head off to your destination or your first waypoint. We're climbing out at a slow speed and then leveling off. So I don't want to go through this again because I have gone through it in detail on straight level, but you need to let the aircraft accelerate. So don't lower the nose, pull the power back to 2300 RPM or whatever the equivalent is for the aircraft you're in because you're going to be 20, 30, 40, 50 knots slower than your final cruise speed. Even if it's a 172 and you're going from 90 to 110, it's still going to take some time. It's going to change the aerodynamic loading on the tail. So straight level, height holding, definitely a big one. Circuits uh, can constantly plague people and uh, probably practice force landings, I would say, would be another. Again, fair bit of judgment involved. And if, again, I don't, you know, I don't want to start instructor bashing here, but if the instructor hasn't really helped the student view and picture what it looks like for that 45 or whatever, again, 
I'm trying to be generic here, but there's so many different aeroplanes, different angles. But whatever the slant angle from the aircraft down to the field is, keep it within that arc. You're generally going to make it. It'll make it easy uh, to set up your approach. But not knowing what all that looks like and the judgment, having to go around at 500 feet, it really makes it quite difficult to uh, make all that work. So that is definitely something uh, you need to be mindful of. Now, part 91, for those that are interested, um, there's a modification in there dealing with safety manoeuvring that it does allow instructors to go below 500 feet without a low-level training endorsement. So have a look at that, and that will also give the student the perspective all the way down to the ground. All right, Glenn, thank you for that one, mate. Um, next one, Hecto, moving on from PFLs. So I've got a suggestion for a podcast around PFLs and PSLs. I'm at the stage where I'm doing more area solos and about to start navigation next month. And this is a topic that's always been on my mind. I'd love to have your take on how to approach them, uh, if possible. Or, of course, I'm, I'm sure this will help others like me who are transitioning from having the safety of their instructor on board to single crew operation. Um, mate, great question. And, I yeah, I, I really think it's, it's a great thing to acknowledge that you are going to be out there by yourself and it's a huge responsibility and a lot of faith um, being put in you and your by your instructor that's saying that, you know, you've got the skills um, to, to get out of trouble if, if the unlikely event takes place on your area solo. be pretty unfortunate, but it has happened. Uh, Sydney, just the other week, there was a solo student engine failure after takeoff. Again, don't know why, but um, they got it down. The thing with PFLs, again, just probably like I just said then, the the inability to do a PFL all the way down to the ground if you're doing it in a paddock because just, you know, it's taking a risk that's unnecessary. So transitioning from doing an, a PFL in a paddock to an actual airport where you can take it all the way down to the ground is critical. I think you really need to do that. So if instructor hasn't do, done that with you, then do so. It's different to just doing a glide approach from base. So try and get that opportunity to do a PFL over a CTAF aerodrome somewhere and come on in and descend down and do it all the way down to the ground. And that will tell you whether you've got your eye in and you're viewing the perspective down to the runway slash paddock or field um, properly. All right. The trick with real life flying is Murphy is going to make that engine fail whenever he wants. So it's not going to be nice and cosy, two and a half, three thousand feet plus starting just before the high key point. So there's time to set things up and do a nice little circuit to land. Sometimes this problem um, is the, the airport's going to be, or the field's going to be right below you. Sometimes it's going to be straight in front of you. You might have to do quite a long straight in approach. It might do it over a water leg just as you're approaching the coast. Um, it might be a left turn, might be a right turn. You might need to just do a few spiral descents down and then into the field because everywhere else is just rocky and, and unsuitable. So factor that in uh, with the training. When you get that opportunity, do different uh, engine phase from different positions. And the other one as well is to ask the instructor to give you a partial engine failure. A lot of engine failures don't necessarily completely fail straight away. Sometimes there might be just 
to a power setting that's less than required for straight and level flight, but there's still some power there. Now, some people will say shut it down straight away. Well, it depends what it is. If it's going to die, it's going to die anyway. As long as it's not on fire and dangerous, use that bit of power and reserve. If it just idles, it'll probably handle it. You might be able to get something out of it if it's not carby icing. Um, use that bit of power, but also make sure you maintain that glide speed because that is what's going to give you the best lift-drag ratio and the most time in the air to get yourself sorted. Be prepared to make decisions early if you're too close. Maneuver early. Don't leave it to the last minute. You do not want to be doing low-level maneuvering because that's just asking for trouble. That's causing high angles of bank pulling back on sticks, and that's where um, we can exceed that critical angle and possibly have a stall spin scenario on final, which, again, would just be an absolute disaster. As far as uh, prep search and landings go, sometimes not taught very well, to be honest. It's something that I feel sometimes gets a bit skipped as just, a, oh, God, we're going to do prep search, let's just do it. It's not something you're going to have to do very often, thank goodness. And either is a, 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 sorry, a practice force landing, but it should be done properly. Now, some people probably get a little bit excited and there's about three or four or five different passes before you finally do a landing approach. Now, if you've got time for that, then, hey, that's great. Get it all set up properly and make your way into the field. Now, prep search and landing is going to be done into an unprepared surface or unprepared field because obviously there's not an airport nearby. You need to get down quickly. Now, for whatever the reasons that there are, that's going to get covered in your briefs. Could be running out of daylight, could be just bad weather, um, could be just a medical emergency and you've got to get down or the aircraft's got a problem. Whatever it is, you want to do at least two passes if you can. The first one, you could potentially do um, your aerial survey of the general area as you set up for a 500-foot pass. So as you're coming over, you might be able to do an overfly and a bit of a downward leg and have a bit of a look at the field. You're looking for trees, power lines, or any obvious uh, problems on the approach or the upwind leg and the general condition of the field. Do your 500-foot pass. You're typically configured with uh, about 2,000 RPM and a stage or two of flap. And once we set this flap, we don't touch it. So the aircraft's trimmed on downwind. We pull the power back a bit for base. Do not retrim. So that as we come down along at 500 feet, we simply put the power back to 2,000 RPM or whatever it is, and we, we're all trimmed up. And we can just fly level. We can do our runway length check by doing our half airspeed times time calculation, and that'll give you rough airfield distance in metres. For that to work, we need to be nice and stable in our speed. So we don't want to do uh, the turn too close to the field. Make sure we've got a little bit of a final leg. We're leveled off and stable at 500 feet, and then we can start our timing as we cross the threshold until the upwind threshold. The next pass, if you determine that there's nothing there to hit, then you can come down to 200 or 300 feet. Now, again, a little bit difficult to do in a paddock without low-level training, um, this could fall under the Part 91 update that I mentioned earlier. Otherwise, it's good to do this at an airfield somewhere, at a CTAF somewhere. If it happens to be one in your training area, that's even better. 
and you can then do your 200 foot pass and that's where we're really looking at the surface of the runway we should be looking out the side of the window then out the front down the side back out the front go around climb back up to 500 feet and then you've finished your pan call and all that sort of stuff and then make your final landing briefing your passengers accordingly all right so the the thing is also, Hecto, not to be, uh, you know, stressing out, but if you're doing regular routes, just take note of what's around you. I know when uh, I had an engine failure in the Tiger Moth, I was over my regular flight route and I sort of already had places, Just I just knew spots that were around and being pre-selected like that takes a whole lot of stress off you. So just be aware of your surroundings um, if you're doing your clear off, one of the Fs at the end there is just possible forced landing areas. Just just be mindful. Remember, sometimes it might be something that's behind you. It's not always in front or out to your side. What's out the right-hand window as well? Sometimes instructors will position a real, really nice field out their side of the window and you'll usually not even look. So make sure you have a quick look all around and see what the best options are. Fantastic. All right, mate, thank you for that question as well. And the final one is from my mate again, that Mellar guy, Dan, sent me another message. And he has, first of all, congratulations to him and Jen just on their birth of their beautiful new daughter. Just arrived the other day, so he hasn't got time for podcasts, so he's participating in mine instead. And he asked, if I had one final lesson to teach, what would it be? And, yeah, I thought, wow, that's a really cool question. And I would have to say, without hesitation, either formation or aerobatics in a tailwheel aeroplane. Um, some of the best flying I've ever done, um, some of the most memorable. It's given me so many opportunities in my career to participate and uh, meet other people, be involved with Red Bull Air Race, uh, doing aerial dogfights in the Nanchangs, flying the extra 300 and a whole plethora of other aeroplanes, which I won't go into now. Um, just the best. So, yep, hands down, that's exactly what it would be. Um, what tailwheel, whatever I could get my hands on, really. <laughs> but, um, yeah, awesome time. So if you get a chance to do aerobatics, do it. Tailwheel, do it. Formation, not as common, but just hand-eye, feet coordination skills and confidence in handling an aeroplane. Uh, just nothing better. All right. Everyone, thank you so much for those questions and input. I've still got more to get through and I will do try and do one more before Christmas, which is only a few weeks away if you can believe it. If you want to send a message, you can flick it through to info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au. You can get me on Instagram or Facebook. Just uh, search for Trent Robinson Aviation. I am on LinkedIn as well. And Patreon. If you'd like to support the podcast, if you're loving what you're hearing, uh, you can follow me on Patreon. You can just follow me on that. You don't have to contribute anything. Um, I do post things exclusively to there that I don't on other social media sites. Uh, otherwise, there are three tiers of membership. You can jump on any of those or you can do a one-off uh, donation payment as well. All of that will go directly to the podcast and also to the production of videos and uh, 
other training materials on uh, YouTube there, which is going to be coming in the new year. I've just decided I'm going to get it all done over Christmas and there'll be some coming out very soon. So keep an eye out for that. Patreon.com forward slash Flight Training Australia if you want some more info. And like I said, there's some uh, patron-only posts and also some exclusive posts to patron uh, Patreon that anyone else can see as well if you want to go and have a look. I would love to have your support there. Thank you so much. All right. Go get that Christmas shopping done. And until next time, clear skies. And remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. See everyone. <laughs>